When you think of somebody who is hard-hearted, do you have like a name in mind? A, uh, a person? I do. Coach Schofield. I'll never forget it. I was in junior high school. I think it was eighth grade, and I was playing football. Coach Schofield was my coach, and he was the defense coach. And this was a mean man. He was, uh, he was just mean. He was about five foot five, and he was as wide as he was tall, solid muscle. He was just this square block of muscle and meanness. And he was also, not only uh, was he the football coach, but he was also my Texas history teacher. And I remember one day in class, uh, Coach Schofield loved to do archaeology of Texas Indians, which is kind of interesting. I guess it takes a mean person to do that. So, but he brought to class one day a moccasin from, it was like 200-year-old moccasin that he'd dug up somewhere in Texas. And he passed it around class. And he said, I don't remember his exact words, but he said something like, uh, I want you to look at this. I want you to examine it. And it's very old, and it might break. And if you drop it, I'm going to make you eat it. <laughs> Coach Schofield. Webster defines hard-hearted as unsympathetic, cruel, pitiless. And last time I looked, I, I forget which edition it was, but last time I looked, there was a picture there of Coach Schofield. <laughs> hard-hearted. Well, you probably got your own example of a hard-hearted person. Uh, we think of biblical hard-heartedness. We think of Pharaoh, who hardened his heart to the point to where eventually God hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people go. We think of the Israelites who refused to follow God. But here in the book of Mark, as we've been working our way through this great gospel, the hard, heart, the hard hearts of people show themselves. And of course, the hard hearts of the leaders, the Pharisees, have already been mentioned. Mark calls the Pharisees hard-hearted. But Mark also calls somebody else hard-hearted that's a little surprising, and that's the disciples. We wouldn't think of the disciples as having hard hearts. I mean, these are the guys that have given up their all to follow Christ. They've put their, all their careers on hold for a little while. They've put their, uh, in some sense, their families on hold. They've put any dreams and ambitions that they had in their personal lives aside, and they've changed their dreams and ambitions to now follow the Messiah because he has promised them that these 12 apostles will sit on the 12 thrones, uh, 12 thrones over the 12 tribes. And so now all of a sudden their goal has changed. They're following Jesus with the kingdom in mind. And yet Mark says that they have hard hearts. We think of Webster's definition, unsympathetic, cruel, pitiless. But biblically, what does it mean to have a hard heart? Because these disciples weren't, they weren't cruel, uh, unsympathetic, pitiless. What does it mean to have a hard heart biblically? And here's, here's the bigger question. Do you have it? Do you have a hard heart? And if you do, what's the solution? Look with me, if you would, at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. 
is where we've come so far in this gospel. And you'll remember from our time last week, Mark taught us through the, the incident where Jesus taught at Nazareth, and he dealt with his hometown there, and the people refused to take him seriously because they knew him so, since a boy. And then he sent the 12 apostles out, verse 7. Some of the 12 sent them out in pairs and gave them authority, instructed them to take nothing on the journey, to trust God for what they would have to be doing on this their first mission trip. And then we have this sort of flashback where Mark tells us sort of a parenthetical flashback on John the Baptist's death, which, which foreshadows the death of Christ. And that takes us down to verse 29. And so let's pick it up again in verse 30, where Mark picks up again the disciples returning after their mission trip. Mark 6.30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. So they come back together after their being out and proclaiming that people should repent. And they, they tell Jesus all about what they did. But notice that the ministry doesn't stop. It, it follows them. And Mark gives this little parenthetical section or, or sentence. There were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. I like that he, that he notes even. He, he, said, he didn't say that they didn't even have time to eat, but they didn't even have time to eat. They were so busy dealing with the needs of the people that they literally didn't have time to eat. And that's busy. If you've got needs that are that demanding, and the apostles are dealing with it, that they didn't even have time to eat, Jesus wisely says, come away by yourselves to a secluded place, to a lonely place, to an isolated place where it's just us, and rest. Rest a while. They'd come off of this mission trip, they were already beat, and now they have the opportunity to pull aside with Jesus and to have kind of a staff retreat, to just rest a little bit. And the disciples, I want you to notice real quickly in verse 30 what, what it says. They reported to Jesus all they had done and taught. Let me emphasize that maybe a little differently. All they had done and taught. Which is sort of interesting when you think about what Jesus gave them the command to do. He gave them the command in chapter 6 to go out and to preach Back in verse 7, he summoned the twelve, sent them out in pairs, gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should take nothing on the journey, etc. So they go out in a context of lack, and they must have eaten something. They must have stayed someplace. God provided for them, just like Jesus was training. They must have driven out demons. That's what he sent them to do. Well, how'd they do that? God provided for them. And yet, when they come back and report to Jesus, 
They report what they had done and taught. Now, you may think, well, you're making a little much of that. Maybe, maybe it's just a, a throwaway statement. I don't think so. The emphasis is on what they had done. You know, when we train people for not just ministry, but for any, uh, any job or any vocation or any discipline, typically we train people for competence. If you read a, um, you know, a resume, you, know, you get a resume and you're wanting to hire somebody, you look at it, and it doesn't say a lot about their character. Now, you may have references on the back that you can call, you know, and find out about their character, but that's not what the resume says. The resume talks about their degrees, about their experience, about their success, about everything they have done. And it should. That's what a resume does. But ironically, what helps a person keep their job is only 20% of that resume and 80% on how they relate to people. If you think about it, in people that have been let go, and people that are, uh, well, not just let go or laid off, but fired. Typically that happens because there's a people problem, not a competency problem. And, um, and yet when people are trained, we're hardly ever trained on character. Jesus didn't do this. It wasn't that he didn't value competence. He does. In fact, he gifted the church with people who were gifted to, with particular gifts and competencies to benefit the body of Christ. But, he, but character is not a spiritual gift. It is not given by God. It is developed by God. And that is what Jesus is doing in the lives of his apostles. He's not only training them for competency, but he's training them for character. We're going to enter a section of Mark here, and we really have already with chapter 6. It's like leaving the shallow end of the pool. Or maybe you might better picture it as being on the beach and walking out into the surf. You know, there's a point, and you know that point if you've ever been to the beach, where the waves sort of lift you and drop you and lift you and drop you, and you're walking out to that point to where all of a sudden you're lifted off the ground for the first time, and then you take another step and there's no ground. And now you're just up and down in the water. That's kind of where we are in the book of Mark regarding the spiritual lives of the disciples. And honestly, where Mark intends to lead us in our spiritual lives. We're into a section now that, that really highlights the inadequacy of what we bring to the table in our Christian walk. The disciples have come back from, from what seems to be a very successful mission trip. And Jesus says, come away, rest, and then he prepares them. He is about to prepare them for not just competency, but character. Jesus is training the twelve on how to do ministry in the age of the church. They didn't realize it at the time, but they would learn it soon enough. So let's look. This miracle that we're well familiar with, but I hope that we're also familiar with the real reason that this miracle occurred the feeding of the 5,000. Look in verse 33. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, but he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. I would have loved to have heard the tone of those questions. You know, it's one thing to just read the words on the page. But you wonder, did they say it with a laugh? Five ha! and two fish. Or with desperation. How'd they say it? It's almost comical. Jesus sets up this scene. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle in the Gospels that is in all four Gospels except the resurrection. It's that significant. Jesus is training the 12 disciples to do ministry in the age of the church. And what they learn in the feeding of the 5,000 is essential for doing ministry in the age of the church. And that's us. If you're going to do ministry, not just ministry, but the Christian life, you must learn, we must learn, what Jesus is teaching here at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It teaches us the only way that we, we can successfully do it. Now, Christ was teaching the people a lot of things, and the disciples, you know, they weren't just sitting idly by. It was the disciples who came to Jesus with the problem. You see, they're starting to pick up on it. These people have needs. Your teaching has been great, but we need to take care of the people. Let's send them away so that they can get something to eat. I don't think they were saying, look, let's get rid of these people. I think they were saying, let's take care of these people. Let's send them away so they can get something to eat. I think one of the challenges of being in ministry is that you and I, like the disciples, can get the idea that Jesus is just using us to do a great work. He's using us to do, he's using us to do a great work in ministry, or to do a great ministry. And that's true. But what is also true is that he's using the ministry to do a great work in you. In fact, the greatest work that Jesus will ever do, or I should say the greater work that Jesus will do in your life, is not through you, but in you. The greatest work that Jesus will do in your life is not through you, but in you. Now that's uncomfortable, but that's the truth. It's uncomfortable because we really want the Lord to do a great work through us, but we don't really want the Lord to do a great work in us because of what that demands of us. The disciples come to Jesus with the problem, and like you and me, they come to Jesus with a solution that makes sense. Send them away so they can get something to eat. That is a solution that will solve the problem, won't it? But Jesus gives a command that is as astonishing as it is emphatic. You give them something to eat. And in the original language, the word you is emphatic. In the Greek, you give them something to eat. It's not send them away. You take care of it. 
And when you read John's account of this miracle, we're told that Jesus set this up to test the disciples, that he already knew what he was going to do, but he was asking this question to test them. He wanted them to think of a solution. The disciples couldn't think of any way around the problem. 200 denarii is a lot of money. In John's gospel, Philip says eight months' wages could not do the job. Now, do some mental math on eight months' wages just in your own life. That's a lot of money. Imagine that. You know, that's like me uh, saying, you know, Rex, after, uh, after class today, we're really grateful that you're going to take us all to have lunch in the French room down at the Adolphus. <laughs> Thank you, brother. What Rex is feeling right now <laughs> is what the apostles felt, except Jesus was serious. Now, the disciples could have remembered the Old Testament because this isn't the first time the Scripture has, has dealt with this issue. Uh, God told Moses to feed the people, the Hebrew children, and Moses said, there wouldn't be enough if we cut all the fish in the sea. Remember Moses saying that? It sounds like the, the disciples. 200 denarii wouldn't take care of this. All the fish in the sea wouldn't take care of it. When Elisha asked his servant to feed the prophets, uh, the servant asked, how can I serve this to a hundred men? They could have remembered that for 40 years God had provided bread for the Israelites. Remember how God answered Moses? He said, is the arm of the Lord too short? Remember what Elisha told his servant? They will eat and have some left over. This isn't God's first time to deal with a food problem. He's done it before. But when Jesus told them to go and look and see how much food there was, you can almost see the disciples scrambling around. He said, go and see. And so they, they run, and they find out. And we're told in John's gospel that they find a little boy with five loaves and two fish. So the disciples, take his lunch. Give me that. Take his lunch. <laughs> and this wasn't five loaves and two fish. It wasn't modern loaves of bread like we think, you know, Mrs. Barrett's wrapped in a plastic with a twisty tie, this was barley loaves. This was like, think, think of a pancake and just gritty. Five of them. I mean, this would feed a little boy. This wouldn't even feed the 12 disciples. And that's all they have. So they reply, basically, it's not enough. We can't do it. And that is exactly the first thing they had to learn, and it's what you and I need to learn in the Christian life and in ministry. And here's the principle. The Lord will call you to do what you cannot do on your own. He'll do it. He will call you to do what you cannot do on your own. God has called us to some impossible tasks. Let me just read a few. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Slaves or employees, work as for the Lord, not for men. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. You know, our immediate response to these commands and many others is, 
yeah, Lord, but here's why that's not going to work. Here's why in my situation, that's just not going to work. The disciples said the same thing. Their answer basically shows that Christ wants them to obey, not just with their resources, but with his. Because if Jesus gives a command that is beyond their resources, that means then Jesus must have resources that they're not using or that they're unaware of. Christ knew the needs of the people. Do you think he knew that a few loaves and fish weren't going to cut it? Of course he did. He, but he wanted them to go and find out. He wanted them to realize they don't have what's necessary to do his impossible command. In Deuteronomy, Moses wrote this. He said, You shall remember all the way which the Lord has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. That's a principle that goes far beyond the Pentateuch and far beyond Israel. It's a principle that goes into our lives. Sometimes God gives us wilderness experiences. He gives us those years, decades sometimes, 40 years for the, for the Hebrews. An entire generation had to die. And we're told the purpose of it, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. The Christian life is not hard. <laughs> it's impossible. It is impossible. You can no more live the Christian life on your own than you can get to heaven on your own. The book of Romans does a masterful job of showing that in Romans 1 through 7. It sets up the problem really well. The Christian life is the life of Christ lived in the life of the Christian. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is the life of Christ lived through the life of the Christian. When God the Father looks at you as a Christian, he sees the righteousness of his Son. Now, we know that. that that's how we know we have our security of our salvation. We know that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That it's not our own works that we're trusting to get us to heaven, but we're trusting the work that Jesus did when he died on the cross. It's the same not only in justification, but also in sanctification. Not only in coming to Christ, but also in living for Christ. Paul wrote in, to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'll say it again. The Christian life is not hard, it's impossible. The Christian life is the life of Christ. Christ lives in me lived throughout the life of the Christian. So Jesus shows them step one. Step one is basically showing them the realization of your desperate need for God and your inability to do what God requires of you. You can't do it. The Lord will call you to do what you cannot do on your own. So what's step two? If step one sounds like really bad news, how does it happen? Well, he goes on, fortunately. 
Later in the book of Mark, Jesus says the things impossible with men are possible with God. And then we're about to see that. Interesting, up to this point, the disciples had been passive observers of Jesus' ministry. Now granted, he had sent them out to, to, uh, to cast out demons. That was through his power. But in his presence, whenever there was a miracle done, he just took care of it. But now he draws them in. He makes them now participants of his miracle. Again, to teach them. So let's look at this. Verse 39. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were about, or there were five thousand men who ate the loaves. So we call this the, the miracle or the feeding of the five thousand, but that number just represented the men, the males. Uh, Matthew goes on to tell us in chapter 14 that women and children also ate. So conservatively, we could say there were 10,000 people there. Easily, probably more. But just to be conservative, let's say there were 10,000. And why mention the numbers? Ironically, the numbers are mentioned to show that they don't matter. I mean, God can feed anybody. He can feed any number of people. You give me a number, God can take care of it. We mentioned the number to show how incredible the miracle was. But notice also, the number is mentioned to give us really a principle of ministry. If there's 10,000 people there, what's 10,000 divided by 12? It's 833. Each disciple was responsible for feeding 833 people. Now, you can't carry meals for 833 people all at once, can you? You have to do it repeatedly. And that's why it says you, he, they, they kept coming back to Jesus. He kept giving them because they had to continue to come back and forth to Jesus. Verse 41, it says, And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. So Jesus, this was a, a private miracle for the disciples. He did it in their presence. He kept doing it for them. As they would provide the food, then they would come back for more, and he would, he would give more. They would provide the food, they would, he would, they would come back, and he would give more. And they were learning in this process of ministering and returning to Christ, ministering and returning to Christ, this is how I do ministry. I don't have it in myself to provide. But I take what I do have to Jesus, he multiplies it and makes it adequate, and then I serve the people. And then I come back to Jesus and continue to do it. This is how ministry works. It's not that Jesus just, you know, gives you everything you need in seminary and you just head out and, you know, you don't see Christ till the rapture. You're with him all the time. This is a ministry that you are doing in conjunction with Christ and that he is doing in conjunction with you. He kept giving them, and the disciples had to keep going back. The purpose of the test 
is showing that the disciples and you and I can't do uh, what he commands us to do on our own, that we absolutely need him. Jesus was showing the disciples that not just what he can do for us, but also what he can do through us. He can do wonderful things through us. And I think God desires to show you that he can do wonderful things through you. That this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is not just for us to be astonished at what, what Jesus can do with the apostles, but what Jesus can do to you through your life as well. Um, so, wow, great lesson, isn't it? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if they'd learned it? Because the odds are always going to be 10,000 to 12, or 833 to 1. Your marriage is always going to be beyond you. Your walk with God is always going to be far more difficult than you and your own strength can, can deal with. Your health is often going to be beyond what you can deal with. And you will find out, and you have found out, as I have as well, that your education, your money, your planning, all of your energy, your influence, your personality, everything is inadequate to deal with what God has called you to, you to deal with in your life. And God hasn't designed it that way to frustrate you. But he has designed it so that if you try to do it without him, it will frustrate you. The frustration is meant to wake us up, to bring us back, to the one whom we were designed to live under and in dependence of him, not independent of him. So 12 disciples, 12 full baskets left over. Each of them is staring at a miracle in their hands. Wow, look what Christ did through me. Look what I did through Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if they learned it? Look at the next verse, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. You'd think by now the disciples would learn whenever Jesus says, get into a boat. It's like, I ain't getting in that boat. And I sure ain't getting in the boat if you ain't getting in it. But these are guys like you and me that are slow to learn. Jesus says, look, I'm going to tell the people goodbye. You go on, go on ahead of me, and I'll meet you at Bethsaida. So they get in, and they get out there. And in, in this dark, eerie 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. part of the night. They're straining against the oars, and once again, they're, at a, they're in a storm on the sea. And Jesus sets it up and sees them straining at the oars, and he intended to pass them by. And it says there that he came to them walking on the sea. I've been to the Sea of Galilee. I've actually taken my hand and 
touched it. It's just water. In fact, it, it's a lot like our Texas lakes. It's just water. You can sink. Jesus, once again, is doing a miracle. He's walking on the water. And it's a miracle that the disciples don't anticipate, and so look at their reaction. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. You know, I looked this up, and the only incident in the whole New Testament where the, where the word ghost appears is right here. There's no other incident but this incident. And in other words, this isn't something very common. I mean, walking on the water is not common either, but people don't talk about ghosts. People don't believe in ghosts. And so why were the apostles, all of a sudden, this is the best they could come up with? A ghost or maybe an apparition, just some spirit walking on the water, coming toward them. They were so terrified, that's the best they could come up with. They didn't even think that it could be Jesus. And so Jesus immediately called out to them in their fear and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Verse 51, Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. It might as well have been Coach Schofield sitting in the boat right there. Their heart was hardened. What does it mean to have a hard heart? What is so significant about the incident of the loaves? It seems sort of misplaced here. They were amazed, it says, verse 52, because they had not gained any insight for the incident of the loaves. How did the incident of the loaves have anything to do with them seeing a ghost walking on the water? Because when Jesus commands them to do something impossible, like to go to the other side of the lake and, and not drown in the storm, and their own abilities proved inadequate, ah, now it should click. We did this earlier today. Jesus gave us an impossible command. You give them something to eat, and Jesus made a way for it to happen. That's Jesus walking on the water. But their heart was hardened, we're told. If you trace the idea of a hard heart throughout the Bible, what it shows you time and time again is an unwillingness to take God at his word. It's an unwillingness to believe that what he has said and to act on it. That's a hard heart. God, I hear what you've said, but I'm not going to believe it in such a way as to apply it in my life. Or I'm not going to take it in and take you seriously. <laughs> not only does the Lord call you, call you to do what you can't do on your own, but here's the second principle this text teaches us. The Lord will enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. We saw that in the feeding of the 5,000. The Lord will enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. How? Well, first, by convincing you that on your own you can't do it. But second, by you continually coming to Christ, appealing to Him, asking for His help, depending fully on Him to do the impossible command and drawing on His resources. 
You see, Christ never fails to put us in circumstances that reveal our hard hearts, those points in our life where we know God's word but ignore God's word, where we, we read the text but we keep it at arm's length, and for some reason we just find out it doesn't apply to us in this particular situation. It worked great when we were talking about multiplying food. That's easy. But out here on the lake, without Christ with us, it's not easy. Well, actually, it's exactly the same challenge. What impossible task has God given you? What impossible task has God given you? Because there's no difference between the loaves, the lake, and your life. There's no difference. God's given you an impossible task that you will not succeed at unless you completely depend on Him. What did He tell the apostles in John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Zero. Zip. There's nothing that you can do. That word has such a terrible finality to it, doesn't it? Apart from me, Jesus said, nothing you can do. That's true not only in ministry, it's true especially in ministry, but it is also true in your daily walk with Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. That's not just for plaques on the wall. That's not just marketing for Christian bookstores. That's for your heart. That's for my heart. I want to urge you to push against the habits that you have settled into. Some of you, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular, have lived a while. But you know, you're not too old to change. You're not too old to change. You're only set in your ways if you want to be. The alternative is spiritual growth. God has not let us live this long for nothing. We aren't just biding our time, waiting for the rapture, waiting for death. We're here for a purpose, and as long as we're still drawing breath, there is purpose, even if that purpose is only to glorify God by spiritual growth. Jesus sent them out two by two in a context of lack, take nothing for the journey. And what happened? God provided in that context of lack. Jesus gave them an impossible command, you give them something to eat. And what happened? Jesus provided in a context of lack. Jesus gave them an impossible command. You cross over and I'll meet you at Bethsaida. Wink, wink. What happened? He provided for them. He came out and met them. He calmed the water. And what happened? They, they went to Bethsaida together. God puts you in a context of lack as well. And when you see God miraculously provide for you in one situation, relate that to another. This is why Mark says 
they were astonished because they hadn't gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. What Jesus tried to teach them with the feeding of the 5,000, he intended that they apply out on the lake. The loaves and the lake, same lesson. And it's the same lesson for us. The encouragement that you receive in your life from God, apply it in that area of your life that still needs encouragement. There's probably not one of us here who has walked with God any time who could stand up and say, I would like to share with you how God has worked in my life in this particular incident. And you, you tell me a, a story of how, you know, 1987, something happened. And this person came along, and you go through the details of it, and you say, and I'm absolutely convinced that was God. Well, you know, the Lord let you remember that for a reason, because he wants you to apply it now in 2018, when you think that somehow this that I'm going through is an exception to the power of God. It isn't. He wants you to think back to 1987 to apply whatever that was in this particular incident as well. Trust him. Trust him. You know, there were three things that I noticed in this chapter. First, we're right up front where he said uh, in verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while, for they did not even have time to eat. There wasn't enough time. There wasn't enough energy. They needed to rest. And then through these, the rest of the, the chapter we looked at, this section, there's not enough resources. You don't have enough energy. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough resources. That's ministry. That's life. And the answer to all three of these is to bring what you do have, as little as it is, to Christ and watch him multiply it and bless it. And you, bring it, you come to him over and over and over. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the feeding of the 5,000 this miracle that gives us insight far beyond ministry, how essential it is for ministry, as we struggle to, to make ends meet financially, as we struggle to make um, there be enough time and to have enough energy. Somehow, Lord, you still bring people to Christ. You still make the resources adequate, and somehow you've done it for some 2,000 years. Your kingdom plan is rolling right along and has not missed a beat. Thank you for the privilege of being part of it. Lord, we also pray these principles be applied not just in big, broad ministry terms, but also in the quiet places of our heart where we feel out in the boat alone in the storm, where we feel given a task by Jesus to feed 5,000 people with inadequate resources where the best we can do is shrug our shoulders and say, God, I can't do it. Lord, would you provide each of us? And each of us has our own scenarios which these principles apply. Provide for us that daily encouragement as we come to you through the scriptures, in prayer, pouring out our hearts to you, and trusting you to do the impossible commands that you've given us 
the call to do. Father, there are those in this room who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that this miraculous power that we've talked about might first begin in their hearts to let the blinders go up, to see their need for Him, that they cannot live the Christian life, they cannot live life on their own, but they must place their faith in Jesus. And we pray that they would do that, that His death on the cross, paying for their sins, would be their complete and final trust. And we all affirm that, Lord. We need Jesus for eternity, but we also need him for today. And so we rely on him once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.